Ever since his formerly daring debut in 1996, The Day a Pig Fell into the Well, Hong Sang-soo has tackled everyday human relationships in fragmented films that challenge narrative conventions. Featuring frustrated protagonists engaged in artistic or academic careers, Hong's characters drink and smoke excessively and attempt to exercise their inner demons through stormy interactions with the opposite sex. As his lost souls, or just bored ones, strive to connect, miscommunication is the word of the day. In Right Now, Wrong Then, Hong's latest feature, a middle-aged filmmaker meets a young painter during the screenings of one of his films and falls in love with her. This time, the film's formal experiment is seemingly more straightforward as the encounter plays out twice with slight differences. In honor of Hong's booze-soaked studies of human behavior, this episode's discussion was accompanied by Korea's national liquor, soju. Here it is. So hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and today I'm joined by... Genevieve Yu. I'm an assistant professor at Eugene Lang College at the New School, and I am a critic for various outlets, including Film Comet. Leo Goldsmith, uh, co-editor of the film section of the Brooklyn Rail. Max Nelson, um, reviewer for Film Comment, and also at the New York Review of Books. Jeff Reichert, I am the co-editor of The Shot and The Filmmaker. Excellent. Thank you all for coming. And this is a very special episode of the Film Comet podcast. We have some soju in honor of, we have two bottles of soju in honor of our subject of today's discussion, Hong Sang Soo. So I'm going to open this and then we can, we can begin. I don't know how well that's reading, but it's a, it's really a bottle being opened. There you go. Okay, Violet, I think you have to pour it out, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. This one. <laughs> there you go. The smell. The smell. And we're and we're honoring uh, we're doing this the right way, which is the first drink of soju is always a shot. I'm the DD. I'm the designated driver. I'm not going to be drinking tonight. All the other participants will be. So let's uh, cheers. Come by. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Slight All taste right. of, uh, of of cleaning fluid, like as as there should be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but otherwise quite quite clean. <laughs> I think Hong Sang Soo, he's one of those directors who is really like cilantro. He's either like you are into it or you're really not into it. So you're all devoted Hong Files, let's say. Before we get too drunk and just start repeating ourselves and be like, oh, he's great. Just uh, get into the appeal. Like what for you is sort of what draws you to his films? Because Leo, you had written something about him, and you had said his his entire career could be seen as like a send up of auteurism, which I think is actually very funny, but also very true. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe that is what I what I what I like about him um, is that you're never quite sure what is sort of a, a joke or not, or what you know what what kind of underlying significance there might be to 
very small details. So it's very, it's all very tantalizing as you watch these sort of films that are really about incredibly mundane things, really awkward situations that are not even awkward in a, even a kind of fairly even dramatic way, just, you know, sort of pleasant or unpleasant. I like listening for how the audience laughs in particular how an audience just responds, especially in a small audience because they, you never, they're never like moments of huge laughter. It's not clear when there are jokes or what's appropriate. And so there's this kind of awkwardness on screen that is also felt like deeply in the audience. And that's always additionally amusing on this other level uh, in a way that I think we don't quite know. We know there's sort of a joke, but not exactly where it is. And, and that kind of uneasiness is part of the experience that I find pleasurable, uh, mm. maybe in a masochistic way. I think there's another filmmaker that's actually captured better what it's like to be a working filmmaker in the world these days, which is you do stumble into a room and there's it's there's 200 seats and there are 27 people and there's you know three of those people are super interested, super excited about what it is they're there to say, and most of the rest don't really care. And this isn't the it seems to be part of so many of his films, but it's not the crux of any of them. So I like that he's able to just sort of build in this kind of very um, kind of um, specifically ethnographic impulse into these films. They're about other things. They have to be so consistently dead on every single time. My heart drops every time it happens. I'm always surprised when Hong is talked about as a divisive figure and as a figure that many people find it, find it very hard to watch and hard to get into because... To me, actually, his his films are extremely consistently kind of pleasurable to watch in their humor, in the precision of their observation, in the kind in the warmth of their observation, and in the pacing, which I think is always so marvelous when I see these when I see these movies that a scene can go on for ten minutes, a shot can go on for ten minutes, and as you say, the interaction can be very mundane, but it's paced meticulously so that you never feel a lag. It's awkward, but you never feel the kind of profound discomfort that would keep you from feeling a kind of pleasure or a kind of identification with, with the characters who are always treated both very critically and very fondly. I mean, it seems like so many of the pleasures of them and the dramatic pleasures of them are very visceral to me. And I, just, I find, I, I, I think it is true that he's a very divisive, that he's a kind of divisive figure and an acquired taste. But to me, the taste seems very easy to acquire in a way. Yeah. Um, well, this, like, again, it's just like certain people umami some people just can't get into it but uh let's do you guys want to do another one yeah, okay, sure let's keep it going. i might sip this one have you guys seen like box art like dvd box art yes for Hong Sang Soo films, like international box art because it's always like a smiling man like holding a smiling woman up in the air and sort of very sexy and very bright and the, and the, the fonts are big and bold and colorful I mean, the way romantic comedies are marketed here, movies mm-hmm. that have like the answers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I also like about him that his movies are not not those movies, but they have these these spins that are placed on them throughout. They're completely they're undercutting them, they're short circuiting that kind of stuff. They're self sabotaging, but yet, like you say, they're super enjoyable for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I mean I think that comes out of the way that the films are marketed in South Korea. I think he's usually working with. He's always working with professional actors, usually people who are quite well known. And it seems to me that those films are often marketed as sort of like star vehicles, even though they're they're really not that. So you'll often see, you know, the actor with a different hairdo, nicer nicer hairdo and nicer clothes, wooing this woman who he's maybe throwing in the air or whatever. But really the movie is maybe a little bit more frumpy and uh, yeah. 
I mean, I suppose if it's divisive, it's because you've walked into a film thinking it's going to be a romantic comedy and your expectations will be utterly um, upended in that sense. So, but I don't totally understand. I understand that people, it's not everyone's uh, cup of tea in the sense, but um, to me, it's a matter of expectation and what you're, what you, and once you've seen one Hong Sang-soo film, you, you kind of have an idea of what they're all going to be like. Um, this is like the truism yeah. um, of his kind of obsessive manner of working as well. Well, I find that's what people reject more than anything else. Mm. It's just like, this is just the same movie. And it's like, but it's not. And I think maybe we maybe this is a good transition to talk about uh, his visual style, because that's one of the most fascinating things about his approach. I've been watching a bunch of his films that I, I hadn't seen um, over the past few days, because I actually did fall out of Hong Sang-soo mm. at a certain point, because I did, I had that reaction where not only did I feel like he was kind of treading in the same waters, he was often treading in the same waters multiple times in the same film. Mm. And so at a certain point, I was like, God, this is, okay, I get it. And then watching things like The Day He Arrives and Hill of Freedom over the past few days, I'm like, okay, I don't know. He's doing many, many different things. One thing, and you know, seeing these films in the crest time frame, I really like camera placement around tables. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, there'll be people on either side of a table. The two but shot. But it's almost never a completely symmetrically rectangular frame. Mm-hmm. It'll often put the camera a little bit closer to somebody on one side of the table and pan slightly to the person on the other side of the table to emphasize who it is that the person that you're supposed to be paying attention to in, in the scene is. You know, sometimes he underlines that with zooms as well, but I think that's something that's, you know, I hadn't really noticed that as I was watching his films sort of stretched out over the beginning part of his career. But it's just a very, very, very subtle thing. But it means that you always know who you're supposed to be looking at without him really putting too fine a point on it. He's also good shooting down bars. It's another another trademark tra- trademark shot of his that I don't see in many other kinds of films, and I think he does so well. Yeah. Well, it's funny because um, I tweeted about this and I deleted it because I was like, this is too inside baseball. But your review of Right Now, Wrong Then, I was trying to put it into Rotten Tomatoes. I hate it. But I have to do it. And I was like, I, what part of it? Like, it was like, because you were doing this very exacting analysis of what he's doing with the camera. And I was like, I can't take a sentence and then put it in the tomato, tomato thing. And then, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Who hasn't read, like, you have to read the whole thing. And I'm like, that's a serious review. But that, it, that should be he, true of every review. It should be. Which is why <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes is very bad. Yes, exactly. But, but uh, yeah. The precision of the tomatometer, is that what you're referring to? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, uh, get, but getting to that, that question of how very banal things, like moving, just panning the camera it takes on this entirely different sense in his films and he's really exam he's sort of probing the art or probing these devices in a way that a lot of filmmakers don't or just it's just sort of taken for granted i mean one thing that's said a lot about the visual style of his films is that it relies on very long takes um he's very reluctant to cut until an action has really fully been completed or an interaction has been has been completed or fully worked out and I find that interesting because it's as if he's daring himself to give himself as little to work with in the editing as possible as if he's daring himself to make these scenes that can't be broken up or rearranged in the editing that have to stay just like they are what happened in front of the camera is going to be what's what's happening on screen and if you want to show something else you have to redo the whole thing which, of course, he 
does in many of the movies. He shows the exact same 10-minute-long interaction, again, as if you're watching a second take of it. And in fact, the interaction goes very differently and very different things happen. And I think part of what what is fascinating, fascinating and unusual and wonderful about him is that he's very interested in comparing these sort of alternate outcomes, each of which is sort of fixed <laughs> as a unit. It can't be tampered with, but it can be restaged completely mm-hmm. and seem to play out in a, in a different way or something. And he does quite, I mean, he does not a, a ton of retakes, but he does quite a few for yeah. takes that are quite, that are, that are so long. I mean, I think he, he yeah. says um, about, about seven or eight is kind of like nor- the norm, Yeah, you know, but, uh, but more than that. Frequently, for, which for for dialogue that he writes the morning of the shoot is quite a feat for the actor, um, uh, which is a tr- you know which is again you know, one of the reasons why he probably works with uh, professional actors is to kind of avoid that um, you know the, the the sort of stumbling that might happen there. It's a it's yeah it's a it's a curious strategy. And yet, I th- I find that there's a feeling like he only ran one take for each shot. There's a kind of looseness, almost an amateurish kind of aesthetic in. Uh, a very s- kind of rudimentary uh, cinematographic language of, uh, you know, the locked off uh, frame in the earlier films and then, you know, starting 2005 with the introduction of zooms um, and these readjustments. Um, I, there's a, a moment in Power of King Long Province, I don't know if this is intentional or not, where the, the boom mic dips down a little bit into the frame, but it kind of works for the film, um, kind of highlighting the artifice of what's what's actually happening. So... I, I I like this really ambiguous place of amateurish seeming um, quote unquote mistakes um, that also uh, kind of lend themselves thematically to the the, the, sponta- the spontaneous feeling of of what's happening in these characters' lives as well. I wonder if, in some ways, that's something of a reaction to the uh, the South Korean filmmakers that he came up with, like Park Chan Wook and Bong Joon Ho, who are so they're so precise. Um, and their frames are so thought through, and the way their camera movements are put together are so calculated. Um, and he just, sometimes it really just seems like he might not have even looked at the frame <laughs> before he said action. You'll see these little, like, uh, I noticed, I think it was maybe in Hill of Freedom, they're, you know, sitting in a bar, and they're talking, and the frame is kind of off kilter. And then in the front of it, in the lower left-hand corner, there's something just blocking part of the image. Mm-hmm. Why is that there? I don't know, it doesn't really signify any depth because it's right, you know, they're maybe two to three feet from it. But it's just kind of there and you wonder, you know, does this stuff matter to him? Well, it's also interesting to compare him with his contemporaries in that, um, you know, he has no interest in genre. Well, Hill of Freedom, as I was watching, I was sort of wondering, is this a science fiction film? Huh. <clears throat> because you have that, that sort of antiseptic distance, the way the camera is sort of watching everything as if it's under a microscope, and they're talking a lot about time and the slippages of time, and then the film is so jumbled. For a second, I thought, God, is he, is he making sci-fi? Je t'aime, je t'aime. It might not be the genre in which his contemporaries work, but I, I've always thought of him as a screwball filmmaker, mm. almost. And you can, I, I don't know, I've, I, I like thinking about at least some of his recent movies as if they're almost like those the, the comedies of remarriage from the 30s and 40s and 50s, but just with much less articulate and clumsier people. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
And there's there's something about the, the the texture of the people of the interactions in his movies that reminds me of the of the kind of the screwball comedies in a way. There's something of a slapstick also going yeah. on with all the body humor and the fact that the actors actually get drunk uh, mm. much of the time uh, when they're drinking yeah. and will just fall down. Uh, that is <laughs> that's uh, very much part of the appeal. Yeah, I mean it is really a cultural thing because like what drinking means in South Korea is completely different from what it means here. But um, speaking of that, <laughs> you're good. It reminds me of an anecdote. Oh, yeah. When I was working at Magnolia Pictures, we were releasing Bong Joon Ho's The Host. Yeah. And so I was on a, you know, I was taking Bong Joon Ho to, <clears throat> to the Toronto Film Festival. One night he just kind of disappears. And the next morning I had to pick him up really early to do press. And he came out of the hotel and he was green. Oh my god. He was totally green. <laughs> And I said, Mr. Bong, what happened? And he just said, Hong Sang Soo. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how much of it is cultural and how much of it is personal. I mean, he's, he always says in interviews when people grill him about the drinking in his films, I like drinking. It's what I do. Why should I not? Why should I not put it in? <laughs> I mean, that's like, I mean, I guess the, the often the talk, discussion of screwball comedy, discussion of romantic comedy as sort of genres that he's that he's maybe sort of playing in, you know, like so many things in his film seem or feel very arbitrary in a way. It's like, oh, no, this is just something that I like. It doesn't in some ways to me, at least it doesn't feel like he's quite referencing this stuff. But then again, you know, that's part of the sort of. The, the a little bit of the, the slippage that happens when you're watching this film is is he referring to this or you know I mean you know I, I think you know like lots of people sort of say oh it's very very Romare or something but uh, you know again it's not you know I I don't really know that that's <laughs> that's something that he's he's interested in sort of pursuing but you know can I ask a question actually because um, Leo I was reading your your review I think it was nobody's daughter Haywan but um, about the the way in which the drinking function toward a kind of catharsis and release. And I'm just wondering, you know, uh, the cultural specificities of drinking aside, how the, how the drinking is part of what the characters are then able to do or, or move through or not move through. Um, if you had thoughts related specifically to that element. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, definitely. Um, I'd be curious to hear what you other, what you guys think as well, but, um, I, I think it definitely functions as a kind of narrative um, engine in a way. It forces things to happen in often very confusing and 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 unpleasant ways. Um, but um, yeah, I I I, I, um, I was thinking about um, about that film again, and I'm not sure. I don't know if I'm not sure if catharsis actually is is the right term because I, I think you know you sort of reach these points of of maybe something that might resemble a catharsis usually at the end of of all of his films. But I don't think one could sort of put a kind of Sort of psychological or emotional kind of you know kind of um, uh, kind of exclamation point on any on any of those those uh, those moments. I mean, I, the, but but thinking about it now, I, I also just think about the the the, the um, is it an octopus that somebody vomits up in Oki's movie? What what is what is it? What, what gets vomited? What's get vom, what gets vomited up? <laughs> it's a very, actually, very lovely, um, you know, quite quite unusual, uh, 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 you know, close up of of, of uh, I think they're eating um, maybe live baby uh, baby octopus. Yeah, and uh, uh, it gets um, uh, ejected, and it's a nice close up of it in the snow. They're hard to eat. Period. <laughs> okay. They're alive, yeah. and they will crawl out of your mouth. But more on humor. More on humor. Uh, I thought what you were saying earlier was really interesting in that you know the audience doesn't even know how to react to these films. I mean, we have these protagonists, these like failed, impotent, 
creative men, mostly men, uh, and they are suffering like these small indignities and humiliations. Um, uh, they want things that they don't, they can't have. They don't like the things that they do have. You know, they have these uh, foibles that are totally recognizable, um, Max, as you were saying, um, that, and they're not held in contempt. They're not help, held as like objects of derision, um, but they're like really painfully awkward uh, uh, situations that um, I think the reason that, that it, it sows a kind of uh, discomfort, a pleasurable discomfort among the audience is that it, these are totally recognizable situations and in our kind of more debased moments have also done very similar things like in Power King Wong Province, you know, if you're, you're sitting with someone who you, your host that you admire and there's a fly in your drink and you're just gonna drink the fly. Uh, and just swallow it and, and, and like hope nobody notices. But that's like the kind of moment that's up there. It's like these are private uh, minor humiliations that, um, uh, and it's hard to share that publicly. I think that's just the kind of the tension in, in that, that moment. Can I say, just in, in terms of inside baseball, uh, having watched uh, a lot of these films sort of over the years, uh, mainly at the New York Film Festival, or, and, uh, <laughs> um, uh, just the the way, and certainly his films have changed, have gotten lighter and funnier. The earlier films are, are quite dark and, and even grim. I mean, something like, I think Woman is the Future of Man was maybe the first film that he showed at the New York Film Festival, and it's pretty... Um, it's a pretty grim film. And then I remember having seen a couple of films before that, and then, then when Tale of Cinema, I think, played, um, uh, uh, there's a moment in that film, I was watching the film and kind of knowing, the, knowing his thing, I was like, oh, this is actually quite funny. And there's a moment in that film when somebody, um, they're, of course, they're drinking, uh, somebody says something awkward, and some this random character who you've never seen before sort of punches this guy in the face, and it's a very, <laughs> like, real, like a real punch in the sense that it's like, really lame and like it just it doesn't it doesn't there's no sound and it's just it's just sort of sad um and i just guffawed very loudly in alice tully hall and there was like complete silence in the room but now you know like in the last uh, you know um uh, hill of freedom was like was like people were like sort of rolling in the aisles which i was like i was like quite pleased at this point you know not only that people have maybe gotten used to hung in a way but he's also you know i, mean, I don't know he's also all, certainly gotten uh, gotten gotten a bit lighter and 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 and, and sort of more, uh, sort of more ridiculous, or more, more. I don't know, more, more, more funny for sure. Can I, can I take this moment as a, as what I suspect is a relative Hong neophyte? I, I still haven't seen many of his earlier movies. Um, to ask if any of you can kind of give a sense of how he started out and what his very early kind of style was before he developed this very recognizable and maybe more consistent style that he's now associated with because this is something I've wondered about and I wish I had I wish I had caught up with these earlier films already but but I want I wonder about this I don't know well there is as, you, as Genevieve said the, the zoom comes in around Taylor Cinema right <clears throat> or at least I hear I've, I've not seen Taylor Cinema but I remember not seeing a few films in the same woman with each other zooms everywhere right. <laughs> 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 um, 32 zooms uh, were, were counted in right now wrong then uh, <laughs> um Somebody's been visiting David Bordeville's blog. <laughs> <laughs> but Turning Gate, if I remember correctly, and it's been many years since I've seen Turning Gate, it's all, almost all static camera with some pants. Okay. Um, and I think the same goes for Merge's Strip and Rider Bachelors. Okay. How, how did he start out in the industry? I mean, he went to California College of the Arts and studied in, in, studied in the States for a time and then came back to, to, 
Korea and, and what what then how did he make his first film yeah. I know he has a well I don't I don't really know very much myself I know he had a television okay. background he was writing scripts okay. um, and I know the early films were scripted I don't know how he got uh, a day the pig fell in the well yeah. uh, off the ground um, but I do know that he was submitting scripts and fin- yeah. and they just gradually got shorter and shorter right um, <laughs> until they became treatments yeah, you know exactly. and then yeah yeah um, one thing I find really interesting is that with Tale of Cinema he started producing his own films as well okay um, so he he just has total freedom and is working in a kind of almost anti-commercial way at this point. Uh, they're super low budget, and he can and he's producing, so he's calling the shots both in terms of its production and marketing, as well as I, I don't know about marketing, but um, that's interesting. Certainly direction yeah. too. Yeah. The TV background seems really interesting because uh, do you know anything more about that? Because you think about his film, if you think about his films, are um, you know as being kind of episodic in certain ways. Uh-huh. You know, starting from that background where you have the same set of characters and have to iterate them out over the course. Hmm. You know, six, ten, twelve episodes, and figure out what are you going to do with these people, and then having the freedom in these movies to do really radical things with them. Like, and right now, wrong then, basically making the same movie twice, and where the second half of the movie kind of knows what happened in the first half. Nobody knows anything about this. I wish no. Um, I mean, it, I, you know, the other thing, the other element of his more recent films, of course, is is, is working within kind of these sort of like film school uh, uh, sort of structure where he can make use of, um, I guess, sort of, you know, crew and other, and other stuff, again, uh, for, for, for financial reasons as a, as a producer. But, um, you know, um, yeah, beyond that, I don't know. But it, it, is, it is striking that he relatively young, it seems like, developed such a consistent way of that by 2005, he had really settled into this very mm-hmm. consistent, recognizable way of working is surprising and, interest, and interesting to me. And also, you know, as, as we've been saying, a distinctive kind of humor, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not, it, it's certainly a kind of humor that you don't see very much in American comedy. And I think a lot of his, if you had to class them in a genre, they would be comedies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I, you know, I was reading this interview he did with cinemascope recently where he cited Chekhov as an as an influence <laughs> and you can you can think of these movies as kind of these you know they have this kind of very chekhovian humorous sense of their of of their characters sort of more pathetic features or their characters failures mm. or their characters humiliations and they all they they a lot of them at least and you'll have to correct me, but it's center on these kind of clumsy men who maybe aren't as successful as they would like to be or aren't as romantically mm-hmm. successful as they'd like to be and are kind of scrambling and and have this kind of pride that they, that they I don't know, that, 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 that sort of motivates them but also depresses them and they make fools of themselves and they, in the most recent one, you know, strip down in public, you know, and they make these big speeches and there's so much alcohol and it's this it's this kind it's this kind of humor that's very low key and very kind of sad and and unglamorous but also as we've been saying has this kind of deep kind of unsim- uh, uh, unsentimental tenderness yeah. to it and that it's just, it, it's something that you don't see really anywhere else I don't know and it's funny because again you're you're getting at this idea of a sensibility but yet 
as you said, this is a universal experience. What what he's what this what this particular sense of humor is getting at is something we all have experienced. Maybe not in that form, but like, yeah, it's recognizable. I mean, and it's totally culturally specific, and it's yeah. like personally specific in that there are these kind of auto. I mean, more than a few autobiographical elements in his films. I, in a way, I was thinking about like how do we reconstruct his uh, Hong Sang Soo's. Um, trajectory through these films. Well, we just pay attention to his characters and then kind of, it maps according to his own career. And he said many times that uh, he often has filmmakers um, as his protagonist because that's what he knows. Um, uh, but he's careful to say that these are fiction uh, or they're, they're based on structures, not on his life. But, you know, we can read in or glean something of that at the same time. So it's working on all these different levels, which, which I find really fascinating. Hmm. What if that means he's happier these days? <laughs> right? I mean, I like freedom has not one but two happy endings. In that he, he does find his, the person he's been looking for and he goes, oh, and then, <laughs> um, and then he also doesn't quite have the awful ending with the woman that he meets along the way. And then, right now, wrong, then this protagonist just completely embarrasses himself and shows himself to be a true jerk. And then gets a second chance to mm -hmm. come back and be a little bit more honest, be a little bit more of a human being to this person. And they actually, it's a really nice moment when that film ends and they sort of say goodbye to each other and they've had this interaction. They've had this evening and that's all they're going to have. And that's all they need. And it seems to be, it feels more at peace than a lot of these other earlier films. Mm -hmm. Hmm. But then I also think that the sort of like the tantalizing, he's obviously playing with this sort of, maybe not obviously, but he's tantalizing you with this kind of autobiographical detail, sure. which makes you want to read things into the film about a filmmaker that's mm -hmm. sort of about filmmaking and sort of about, you know, uh, the sort of this guy who's renowned for drinking a lot. And, you know, and I think that a lot of that is, 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 is very playful and in some ways a bit of a kind of, um, I don't know, a, a kind of a sort of its own kind of maze that, that, um, that, that we as audiences, as critics, get kind of into ourselves, mm -hmm. um, you know, quite like his films, you know, where it's 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 so self-reflexive that it's almost um, mm -hmm. that it, it almost sort of like sort of negates the kind of like the, the gesture or like at least sort of parodies the gesture in a certain way. Uh, I don't know if there's a moment like this in any of his other films, and this may be a spoiler about uh, right then, wrong now, but when um, the female character admits during the drinking scene that she's lonely. It's the first time I've I've heard anyone in his films, and maybe maybe uh, you can fill in some of the gaps. Um, uh, but to be so honest about it, and then that is received by the man who has utterly failed in the last iteration uh, of that scene. Uh, but he recognizes her loneliness and loves her for it, in part because he's recognizing his own loneliness. And it's to me, this is like the most exposed. Uh, maybe autobiographical, um, but really like the most kind of, it's it's the most moving uh, moment for me in, in any of his films. And it suggests to me that he's happier because he's like acknowledged what it is that is troubling all of his characters. This is profound loneliness and a, and a desire to connect with others and a failure to do so. Yeah, it's actually an inversion of what comes in Hill of Freedom and actually maybe maybe also um, Nobody's Daughter, Haywon, in which there, a, a, a man says to a woman, you seem uh, lonely on the outside, but you're brave on the inside. And, and it's like, it's sort of repeated as this sort of thing that is sort of a meaningless interpretation that, 
that people can sort of foist on, on, on another person, specifically men can foist upon on women, yeah. and that they will always sort of say, oh, yeah, that's, that's totally right. So you know, in, in, a, in a funny way, like in those, those films, it's almost this sort of questionable kind of, um, uh, in, in, in fact, a kind of like um, uh, this idea that, that interpretations are always just sort of arbitrary constructions that we sort of throw at things that are meaningless and are, you know, don't make any sense. But as you're saying, actually, in this film, it, it does have a certain kind of a more confessional sense, mm -hmm. which is actually quite a little bit different. Um, and uh, it's not saying I love you, which happens in all of his films. And it's it's meaningless. It's it's, it's like it's a line to get someone in bed. Um, <laughs> it's horrible <laughs> in this way. But it, it's something different about the new film. I mean, that's my, my sense of it. Uh, does anyone need a refill? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my hand's not steady. There you go. We're almost finished the first bottle. I know. Oh, good yes. job, guys. Rapidly. You're all doing so well. So proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, this that Any is a that is a uh... live yeah, live baby octopus. <laughs> so, part no, of this part of the deal. I could no. I mean, it was a it was a deliberate thing on my part because it's like it speeds speeds up the process. Yeah, but um, I don't know. Can we talk? I guess it would be great to hear you guys talk more about the more recent film. I guess uh, just sort of reactions, not not just uh, in relation to the other work, but in and of itself. I mean, I just saw it this morning. Yeah. Um. So I'm still sort of turning it over. But the thing, um, and I, I think I alluded to this a little bit earlier. You know, it's in some ways it's not as obviously radical as something like Hill of Freedom, mm. which is completely scrambled, or something like The Day He Arrives, which mm -hmm. seems like it could be three days, or it could all just be the same day. Um, and also, like, those things may not even matter. The time may not really matter. Um, this is, seems fairly straightforward. It's cut in the middle. One half is a, it's the same story. One half um, is kind of depressing and sad. One half ends a bit more nicely. But I did get the sense, especially in the second half, in the way the He Jing, is that the character name, He Jing? Um, the way she's, she is played at the beginning, <clears throat> when she first meets the filmmaker character, that she's wary of him because what has happened before. Now, it doesn't make any sense, because it's supposed to be the same, the same thing, sort of, that's happened already. The idea that parts of the film can have awareness of each other and have this sort of agency beyond the filmmaker, it just got me... I mean, mulling that over thing, that's kind of a really interesting thing to sort of um, roll the dice, let the film be what the film is going to be, and let it have its own sort of life independent of some sort of design. Mm -hmm. That seemed pretty radical. I take my cue from Nobody's Daughter Heiwan, uh, where she's dreaming. Uh, and like, I'm. I just let these, you know, he calls his actors or his characters elements and there's various elements like floating around, reassembling, but with like a kind of vague, as you're saying, Jeff, this vague flavor of what just happened before. So it's not quite an awareness or conscious uh, sense of it, but uh, something like a dream logic, but without like a Dali style, you know, surrealist dreamscape. It's just kind of the way that these elements just recombine um, infinitely and maybe sometimes line up, sometimes don't, you know, sometimes it's the right then or it's the wrong then, uh, you know, sometimes it, we get it all right, sometimes we get it all wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, I kept thinking to, um, about Tale of Cinema 
and it's sort of similar structure. But you know, of course, in that film, it's a it's a film within a film, and then the sort of reality, you know, whatever that is. And then, of course, you know, then I started thinking like a good cinephile about Mulholland Drive mm -hmm. and the conventional interpretation of that film is so, oh, it's a dream, and then it's reality. But you know, in a similar way, not to you know, not to sort of like you know shoehorn these two together. You know, in a similar way, I think there's sort of a, a kind of neither uh, part of the film. Uh, is it takes precedent, you know. It's not. It's not like that. One is the sort of like, you know, would have been, or in one of the sort of like worst case scenario. You know, neither of those works. They just sort of both kind of. Um, uh, they both kind of exist and sort of reflect one another um, uh, in a way that is um, that's that's productive, but doesn't force you to sort of say this is the sort of preferred version. Even though probably we do have a preferred version, he, he's, it, because they're in sequence, he certainly has some kind of preferred version of which one is a little ends a little bit better. But. Yeah, I mean, for for me, uh, again, as a relative Hong neophyte, this film kind of, and I'd seen several of his, of his films before this, but it kind of confirmed for me what makes him very special as a filmmaker, which which is that he's so interested in the kind of dramatic possibilities of creating a character who has various possibilities open to him. You know, he he's and he's in this new place he's he's this filmmaker traveling in an unfamiliar city or a city that is not his home city um and he has this interaction with a woman he's married back home but he it can it can it opens up for him the possibilities of another another life or at least another immediate future for him you know and it, it, i mean it struck me watching it that hong really needs this sense of kind of range of possible futures to be kept very open. And he's very concerned as a filmmaker not to close off dramatic or visual possibilities that can be left open. And I think that's the motivation for for a lot of the kind of odd structures of his films, that you can have these films where the same events play out in two different ways, that somehow if you if you as a filmmaker can leave as much kind of contingent and unfixed and undecided as possible. It'll create a movie that's very alive and very kind of thrilling and, 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 and surprising, um, which is contrary to a lot of received to a lot of wisdom that filmmakers, that a lot of filmmakers absorb, which is that you have to always be doing things that pin the film down and limit the possibilities that it can, that it can branch off into. I, I was reading this, again, reading, reading this interview with him, and he said this great thing. He drew on a napkin in the interview. He drew a diagram of the two possible worlds as circles with kind of complicated lines going back and forth between them. And he said, once we make clear sense out of these two worlds, they're just used up. It happens, though, that it's not easy to give them a clear meaning. So all the questions are kept alive if there's an infinite possibility of worlds. Mm -hmm. And that, that was very interesting to me, that somehow he can't use the worlds up. And that, that is a kind of an interesting justification for why he chooses this structure, but it's also interesting because it bears on what his characters are like, that these, they're, they're these people with desires that are unfulfilled and aren't fixed mm -hmm. and their clumsiness and all the humiliations they put themselves through are down to the fact that they like want to like 
I mean, in this case, the director wants to get the woman in bed, which is it seems the motivation for a lot of Hong's <laughs> a lot of Hong's characters. But that in itself is kind of this this kind of open possibility for him that motivates him and is a kind of desire that is unsatisfied or something. And that seems like very important to what he does. But I don't know. It sounds like science fiction when you start talking about multiple worlds. It does, what? yeah. Well, it's or, or or just something non-Western, like a non-Western understanding of time or what existences i think it's the hong sang su multiverse personally (laughs) yeah the hcu (laughs) do you guys have any thoughts about the use of voiceover um in his work i i was and i'm thinking particularly about the most recent film but certainly any of his i think since also since his introduction of zooms he's introduced voiceover um but i thought the in in right then wrong now uh, since the first half has voiceover and the second doesn't, it made me rethink what the voiceover is doing and who it's speaking to. Because I, 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 I don't have this totally worked out as a, a theory, but um, drink some more. He'll, be, he'll come to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's supposed to be like oddly inconsequential. Sometimes the things that are that are noted. I think there's a line in Right Now Wrong then where it's sort of like it was perfect up until this moment. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, like, well, what, what does that really mean? And then it just kind of continues and goes on. It doesn't seem to bear too, too much information. Happens. And then it all happens again without the voiceover. I was waiting for that line to see if it would come back mm-hmm. and see if it would shed light on this, on this second sequence of events. But then it's just not there. And to your point, I'm looking at his filmography and I have no recollection of which ones have voiceover and which ones don't. I mean, maybe some. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it does feel. Um, uh, this sort of strange... I mean, I, I think there's a strange thing. We've been talking about these films in terms of character psychology, in terms of, you know, Max Richter was talking about, you know, the desires and motivations of the characters. But in fact, like, there's this... this the One of the things that's so striking about his films is the is the real flatness about mm-hmm. the situations. Of course, these sort of peaks of, of emotion and come out, and certainly in, the, in our reaction is... Um, as, 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 you know, as moviegoers, uh, uh, we have, you know, we in our own, bring our own sort of <laughs> awkward memories to the, to the table. We sort of remember stuff as well. But um, uh, I, I think there's an interesting thing that's going on with the voiceover where it's a sort of intimation of a kind of interior monologue. But I'm never really sure, this is not by, by any means a negative thing or a criticism, but I'm never really sure if there really is an interior in other words, it's always about. It seems to me so much about surface mm-hmm. um, in his films that I think, that, and I think you know, in just stylistically, in terms of you know, uh, the, the in terms of structurally, even um, you were talking about his the diagrams that he draw that draws there, and of course you think about the woman on the beach uh, diagram. Um, it's all about sort of diagrams and this sort of obsessiveness with this kind of these kinds of structures that are put on these really quite banal everyday situations, which I think seems to really maybe more. At least, what at least at least in terms as as a filmmaker, possibly what he's interested in, rather than maybe emotions or motivations or desire. I'm not sure. I, you know, I mean, I guess it's kind of a question that I have. You know, again, that, that sort of makes me interested in his films. I've hatched a theory, um, and it's not uh, incongruous with your. <laughs> it's a soju. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, the, I noticed an absence of friends in uh, Right Then, Wrong Now. And I, I, I was thinking if the voiceover is there, I think we're like his bro. I think we're <laughs> like his friend that he's, conf- he's, he's kind of like talking up this like s- not great encounter. And he's like, oh, yeah. And then the evening tanked from that point forward. Um, 
And, you know, and, but he's not confessed. There's no one to, you know, quote unquote, confess to in the second half. He's just there. When he's talking, he's talking directly to this woman that he's interested in um, and not hiding himself. Uh, again, the, and it, it plays with this kind of like lack of interiority. He's just performing, uh, being this like masculine, what he thinks is like this sexually uh, attractive or conquesting dude, you know, in, mm -hmm. in a Korean sense. Well, that was really good. You should have some more. <laughs> <laughs> I think we got to get the other guy open. It was so sad that uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll post post a photo of this bottle. But I love this woman on the back, who's <laughs> naked but has a tiny, very tiny glass. No, that's you're good. Oh, oh, sorry. Jeez. That's the other thing about the early films: a lot more nudity. Oh yeah, sex she, disappears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it disappears. You know, or when it happens, it's almost tender in a way. Um, whereas in the early films, it is just people pounding at each other in a way that's yes. just really unpleasant. Horrific. I mean, I remember the scene in Turning Gate where he's the man is on, on top of his conquest and he's just talking about his moves. Like, do you like my moves? Do you like my moves? <laughs> <laughs> and there are other people out there who have sex like that. Yeah. Um, but it's horrible. It's just horrible. Yeah, <laughs> woman is the feature of man is is quite is quite um, is quite, yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't have anything to say about it really. It's yeah, but it, but it's interesting how he did he, how he did move away. I think quite consciously. I, I I can't remember where I read this. It was a sort of a conscious move to move away from that kind of. And you know, one could could easily attribute it to him becoming more happy, or more like, well, maybe people don't really like this kind of stuff in a movie. But it, it's not as if the characters get less less horny right. or less sex obsessed. <laughs> it's just that it's just that he's more discreet, and that's interesting. Yeah. 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 Hmm. yeah I think it was it was around. I remember seeing Woman on the Beach and expecting some sort of horrific sex scene, and then right. it's, it's just not there. And the, also, I, I don't know when the music comes in, the sort of ridiculous, bouncy, oh my God. sort of, um, you know, pop and piano. And I was going to bring that up. Full winsome sounds, you know. It's just, all of a sudden that comes in. What? Who is this filmmaker? The best is uh, Oki's movie. The credits are the, I don't even know what it's called. It's the graduation Pop theme song. Pomp and Circumstance. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I just called it the graduation theme song. It's a better title. Pomp and Stomp. Or that weird remix on the tape player. <laughs> that classical piece, but it's remixed with extra strings and like a beat. And, um, and that's Nobody's Daughter, Hey Juan. What, what is this stuff? There's a polka in Arsuni, right? Or is it, am I thinking of Philip Reed? Um, sort of like a polka? I don't know. But yes, there's, there's one movie with, yeah, with a polka. One thing I wanted to ask about, I mean, he's, we've been talking about how good he is with these kind of pathetic Chekhovian men, you know, who who are kind of self-aggrandizing and horny and often kind of sad sacks. I mean, I, I remember being struck seeing seeing In Another Country, Mm -hmm. by how he handled a film with a female protagonist. Mm -hmm. And I wondered what other films of his this might... How many other films of his are centered on characters who are not men of this type? And how many there are of those? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Again, as a, like someone who has not seen enough of his films. Like, because like, I remember that being really interesting within, in another country, that how good he was with the Isabel Huppert character, who was such mm -hmm. an abnormal character for his movies. Mm -hmm. 
And I think he's making another, he's in the process of making another film with her, which he shot partly at Cannes. Is he? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Which is, which is of course, very Hong. I mean, they're probably going to be at Cannes. It's probably going to be the, the, the lamest parts of Cannes that they're going to be hanging out in. <laughs> ca- cafes and, you know, sort of like, yeah, maybe gas stations or something. Yeah, no. Um, well, there's a certain strange sort of turn towards the female perspective that starts with really from uh, like in my recollection really the end of woman on the beach literally the woman on the beach at the end of woman on the beach um where she's sort of stuck her car is stuck in this in in the, in the sand as i recall and some guys like help her get out and you're like oh wow that's a really oddly like affirming gesture again after many years of sort of like you know uh really sort of manhand you know being manhandled by um you know sort of like these sort of oafish men um and then uh Oki's movie I bel- also ends with Oki's actual movie, mm-hmm. right? So it's a sort of like literal female perspective. And then um, Nobody's Daughter, Hewan, is, is really just a fully, um, uh, you know, fully from the, from the sort, of, sort of focalized point of a female character. Um, so there's a kind of progression in that direction, um, which is, which is, <laughs> it's okay. Um, you can't even blame the soju. So. No, I know, it's yeah. just water. Yeah. Um, that's kind of all I have to say. I mean, you know, in, in a way, he, he does. Uh, I mean, again, something like "Woman is the Future of Man" is really quite, quite goes goes pretty hard on the on the like on the sort of failings of and, and you know and sort of you know frailties of men and their and their egos and their and their um, yeah and their and their horniness as you as you put mm-hmm. it. You know, Virgin Sugar by Bachelors, the men are, are definitely horrible, but the woman is kind of a, left a cipher. In a weird way, as I remember it, she doesn't seem to have much to her. Right. As she, you know, she gradually gets more women on the beach. Obviously, she's, you know, there's, there's more there. And you're right. As you get later in the career, you know, Arsun, even nobody's daughter Hewan, you know, it is more about the female perspective. And Hill of Freedom, kind of, for me, has a bit of a tussle between the two because it's his letters, but she's reading them, and she's determining right. the order because she's dropped them and she's sort of trying to piece it all together. Right. And I mean the. Um... Uh, even just to kind of get back to the sort of genre idea, this sort of like men are shit and women are ciphers thing is itself this kind of this kind of thing that he sort of plays with as almost as a, to me it's, it almost seems like it's kind of a joke about mm-hmm. art cinema or something you know <laughs> like you know it just keeps coming up again and, and and in a way he kind of drops it and he and and even the recent films in some ways are are sincere sometimes to the point of like of of sort of yeah of, of kind of naivete in a, in a way occasionally something like hill of freedom almost is is like is overtly sincere i know but, it's so yeah. warm it's so weird it's yeah. just so weird <laughs> this is kind of why he some of his recent films remind me of the screwball comedies because they're they're these sort of combative interactions between men and women where the intelligence is either evenly distributed on both sides or concentrated in the in the woman, like in bring, in bringing up baby, where the the man is a doofus compared with her, you know, and and I'm I, I was interested in that, thinking back about in another country, mm-hmm. because there you have this very kind of intelligent intelligent female protagonist and this very doofus like very sweet <laughs> male character, you know. Um, and it just seemed it seemed atypical for him, and it seemed kind of that 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 seemed interesting to me. But I like that how, as women have moved to the fore in at least some of his films, they are they they're possessed with the same foibles as uh, 
as the male characters previously. Um, I didn't realize Isabel Huppert was so funny uh, until I watched In Another Country. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm like, she's so game. It's great. I mean, she's an amazing actress, but I didn't know she could just gesticulate wildly in that way, you know, like looking for a lighthouse. Um, uh, and that was really just you know my, in my fandom of her was was, was a moment but um that she could look so foolish uh and his female characters have been looking very foolish lately um and that there's some kind of gender parody happening there in this again doofusy uh f i like to think of them his men as floppy um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I i mean they're always you know Whatever, however long the duration, you know, the sort of the, the 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 story time is, they're always wear the same clothes every day. It's mm -hmm. always this sort of untucked shirt, actually quite frumpy in in, in the manner of Hong mm -hmm. Sang Soo himself. You know, these sort of jeans. Oh, the and, jeans are and, terrible. And, and yeah. shirt and sweater combo. They're actually, like, sorry, sorry, you're sort of wearing that that outfit I mean, I right kind now. Of have, but I think my jeans are a bit better. Yeah, your jeans are your jeans. They're are like Barack least. Obama mom jeans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't get much more of that. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate <laughs> <laughs> Can I do another New York Film Festival story? Uh, best um, uh, answer at a Q&A ever. Uh, um, Lisa Schwartzbaum is, uh, is, is Q&Aing Hong about woman on, the, woman on the Beach, about the dog at the end of the movie, which is a white dog. And Lisa Schwartzbaum has this whole kind of theory about the white dog that she's presenting on stage in front of many people to Hong. And he says, after many days, purity of the white dog and the dog, you know, whatever. Um, and he just says, I like dogs. Very quiet. Very like, I like dogs. Well, it comes back to the idea that he knows the horror of the filmmaker Q&A right. better than just about anybody. I mean, watching in Right Now, Wrong Then, when, it, you know, it cuts to the Q&A and the guy says, can you explain cinema in one sentence? <laughs> And then he starts to answer seriously, but then realizes it's a ridiculous and then ridiculousness, then lashes out at the audience and leaves. Which you feel yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, you also feel. I remember. I think he has probably one of the lowest pompousness thresholds of any working director. And I remember when I was trying to think about how to write a review of one of his movies thinking my god anything you write about these movies is going to sound pompous to him and he's gonna he's gonna read it and think oh my god you know this this you know oh, kind of think he's reading your reviews <laughs> well, well you know okay well fine but <laughs> it was too sick of a bird not to well of course yeah but no but you know he's gonna read any review of any of his movies and think and think that it's just this kind of brash pontif pontificating, you know, because he's so he's so allergic to that and, and rightly allergic to it. And, you know, and we've been talking about how schlubby his characters are and how doofus-like they are and how kind of horny they are and how irresponsible they are. But they're also, one senses kind of like him, very hostile to that kind of pretentiousness in a way that's very refreshing and likable and i think that's almost that and i think he knows that and he makes that one of their most likable features because he is himself very kind of very sharp about pompousness and sharp about critics who think that they have the kind of overarching explanation for what it is he does and what it is that filmmaking is and what life is and what cinema is um 
and I, I, and you know something in me thinks that he sees that whole business of asking questions like that as sort of opposed to the better and more interesting project of keeping possibilities open you know and keeping kind of contingency an important thing you know that 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 talking about these movies in this way in, in this way kind of shuts them off you know whereas they need to kind of stay open yeah it pins them down something. as soon as he's as soon as he's answered a question then right. you know it's foreclosed in a certain way and i think that might be both why he spends so much time filming filmmakers and making movies about filmmakers and why he's so unforthcoming in Q and A's, why he always <laughs> goes for the simplest answer, like I like drinking or I like dogs, or you know, because to 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 spin a theory would be to be to work very much against what the films are doing in some way. I don't know. The emphasis in right now, wrong then in the Q and A session is to watch the films. I mean, the I think the the moment of connection for uh, the relationship that's maybe doomed, maybe budding. Uh, is that she will watch his film. She sits through, yeah. um, and that's right. an important, like, that supersedes anything he could say about it because it's it's right there. And we don't even see the Q&A at all in the second half. It just cuts and it's, and it's ended. There's a pompous guy in the audience, but it wasn't the moderator. Yeah. Um, we haven't really talked about the Zooms, speaking of pointless pontification. Love the zooms. Love the zooms. They're they're ugly, oftentimes, and you know they're not. They don't feel like a <clears throat> particularly pre-calibrated maneuver. Um, sometimes it lands on a frame that seems like it was intended to be. Other times it's it will the zoom will land and the camera will adjust slightly up, down, left, right to get <laughs> to the place, almost if the camera operator had maybe had some soju. But it, like, the spontaneity of it is what's really exciting because you don't know exactly where it's going to go. Right. And it might, it might start to zoom in on one person then pan over to the other person and land there. You just don't know what's going to happen. Right. And they don't, I mean, they sort of fun- serve the function as of, of a cut-in, but it's not really usually motivated by anything in particular. Mm-hmm. You just have the sense of him sitting there saying, okay, yeah. okay, yeah, time now to zoom in. Zoom in on that. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're to me... Um, responsive rather than predictive like they don't go to the character to wait for a reaction to something outlandish someone else has said they respond and with a bit of a delay and with this kind of jerky that you know they sometimes stop in the middle as they're getting to the person um i i love that about them they 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 have a kind of sensibility of like a a presence that they inhabit the character's drunken slowed response time to something that's happened i mean that's one of the zooms and the other zooms are the random like seem really random uh we're gonna zoom in on a tree um Mm -hmm. we're gonna start on a foot and zoom out to reveal the scene that you're about to see why when does that happen I think, like you know it all, there's a <laughs> there's one film that has a, a cut to a foot and then it pulls back out, but it's I can't. So, yeah. Another thing we haven't talked about and we don't have to talk about are like these titles. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, ha ha ha. Anyway, well, I I like that. Right now, wrong then begins on the title frame. Right then, wrong now. You think? Did I go to the wrong movie? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. 
I'll say one thing about the Zooms, sort of finally, is that, is that it's a strange thing about Zooms in general, which is why they were not really in fashion, is that it's sort of like, it's the most like sort of overt gesture of like point of view that you can have while also being like really mechanical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that you're, you know, you're thinking about, you're just, you're, you're, you're emphasizing the distance between the camera and the subject, mm-hmm. but you're completely flattening everything that's going on there. Mm-hmm. And to me that, I mean, you know, he says that it was a sort of accidental thing. Like he just one day wanted to sort of start zooming in and getting closer without cutting. And it seems so characteristic and in a way that like is becoming, again, one of these sort of like, I'm an auteur, isn't that ridiculous? Um, kind of things he just does all the time now. Um, uh, and, and you know, it, but it seems so perfectly to encapsulate like what I think is a source of perspective, which is like this thing that is in some ways very, from a very fixed point of view, but also something that seems very automatic and artificial and and not and not not pers- not like not like not deep again not not sort of something very interested in just what's going on in front of him in the sort of surface area and not this kind of penetrating gaze or some kind of you know it's not a tracking shot it's not a, it's not a tourist you know sort of like oh we're really going to pull in here and we're really going to get the get the meat of the the issue here it's really just going to say we're going to actually make this more flat and more strange somebody pushed a button on the camera and it moved in in this very mechanical very strange way and i think too i mean i wonder there might be an interesting comparison to be made about zooms pre-digital versus zooms digital mm-hmm. <clears throat> because those two things function just in terms of camera mm-hmm. in a different way and they move differently and they seem very different yeah i also i, I think they're kind of sweet the zooms and yeah. i and i they're earnest yeah i mean i think they remind me of that great scene I think it's in Night and Day where two male characters are standing outside of a house and one of them kind of turns to the other and says, do you want to shake hands? <laughs> and then the other one says, okay. And they just shake hands, you know. And, you know, the Zooms feel feel like that to me where they sort of come out of nowhere and they're this convention that tends to be used in fiction films in a very circumscribed way. And here it's being used in a sort of, in a way that, for which there doesn't seem to be an occasion, but there's an almost kind of, there's something kind of socially sweet about it and unpretentious about it. And that seems, uh, it's it's breaking the fourth wall in that it kind of cues you into the fact that you're watching a movie, but it's also, it's also this kind of loosening thing. It's that if I want to shake hands now, I'll shake hands now. If I want to zoom now, I'll zoom now. And that seems to that seems to be very much in keeping with his aversion to pompousness or put togetherness or profession or, or professionalism or something. Yeah. There's a lack of interference. It's sort of practical for the actors and things like that, which and is just probably just kind of the only reason. <laughs> it's the only reason just, for it. You know, and it's, and it's a kind of, it's a kind of gesture to the audience. It's a kind of handshake to the audience, mm-hmm. you know, like, look at this. Hi. That, uh, you know, it doesn't seem that that seems like it's justification enough for a Zoom for him, whereas it wouldn't be for almost any other filmmaker. Well, they're unfashionable. They're they're yeah. they're passe. Um, the two shot also Boardwell has written about this on his blog. Mm-hmm. Um, that they, these are like they're in another director's hands. They would be throwbacks. They would be citational. Tarantino uses zooms in this way, but and I I admire the zooms and these camera techniques because they are so particular to the to Hong's style 
of shooting. It comes not out of any awareness or concern for what's happening around him, and this is the kind of anti-pretentiousness maybe yeah. also um, just expressed cinematographically, uh, but that it's just of a kind of uh, integrity to what he's, like his vision and what he's doing. Well, we can wrap it up here, as sad as it is to do that. But before we close, in the spirit of last 10 films, it would be great if everyone went around and said one movie that they saw recently that they liked. Um, I can start, so the look of panic <laughs> from your drunken faces. Um, what did I see recently that I liked? Oh, shit. Um, Warcraft looks really good. <laughs> this isn't predicted. Oh, sorry. <laughs> this is had seen. I saw um, Penelope Spheris' Suburbia, probably the premier flea vehicle, uh, Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers in its prime. More than in The Big Lebowski. More. I feel like wow. More, I feel like now is his prime. Really? <laughs> Throw it out there. Uh, the, the bass playing the national yeah. anthem on the bass. Yeah, I mean, the come war, on. Like, anyway, having rewatched um, all the Decline and Fall movies again recently, it was just like, yeah. a thrill mm-hmm. to watch that and see how so... Like, again, it's like... It's a hybrid documentary is such a big deal now, but to see how seamlessly she integrated... Not just this scene, this very specific scene that was very specific to a time, but, you know, these techniques of shooting these people and portraying this culture and being very respectful, but also inquisitive and constructively critical about it. And then also being kind of sad because it's so far removed from, you know, the way in which we're sort of not able to protest against or all of our agency has sort of been taken away from protesting yet meaningfully against a lot of things, like large multinational corporations when you're tweeting, like, I'm sorry, the tweets are own, <laughs> Facebook posts are own, like all this stuff that we don't actually, ways of voicing, giving, thinking that we have a voice, you know, and then seeing suburbia where it's like, like the third like the third decline of decline movie which is amazing yeah. which is yeah. like which is like a masterpiece which you know I mean. yeah and that made me so sad obviously what happens to certain characters in sure movie. i've been going to a, a few things at this this great moma universal series i'm not sure how much longer it's on but there was this one there recently called OK America. <laughs> which could be a Hong Sang Soo movie, which actually. Which could be a Hong yeah. Sang Soo movie, and which everyone should see. It's, it's a great movie about a newspaper gossip columnist who kind of rules the social world, and everyone's in fear of being exposed by him, um, who gets embroiled in a kidnapping plot on behalf of the mob, and he ends up going to the president to appeal for the life of a kidnapping victim. And it's like a stunning movie. And it made me think about the whole genre of like newspaper, new, newsroom, Hollywood newsroom movies and gossip columnist movies. Um, if anyone has any, has any leads, leads on that. Um, it's, it's a real, it's a blast. And there are lots of great little bit characters and, odd visual things going on in it and great scenes where he goes into like late 20s like cabarets and smoke-filled bars where everyone's ducking out of sight of him because they're on dates with their mistresses and they don't want to be caught by the gossip columnist 
I had never I had never heard about it or the director who seems to have had a re- big restoration recently at MoMA, Tay, Tay Garnett. Mm. Um, but it's great. That was it my turn. Yeah, um, great stuff. I yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of movies that I've seen recently, but but I'll mention one that I haven't that I saw a little while ago that is because it's new. I'll mention it anyway. It's the Tom Anderson's The Thoughts That Once We Had, which I think Genevieve is about to see yeah, uh, uh, tonight. So I'm not no spoilers. <laughs> Um, but it's, I mean, you know, I think people are generally sort of, oh yeah, Tom Anderson, it's a great movie, yeah, and, and you, but but in, in, in many ways it's a really interesting film for him because on the one hand it's kind of a pedagogical kind of explication of Deleuze's cinema books, but it's not that actually <laughs> at all. And it's really just kind of, you know, he uses that part of the film to kind of explain certain concepts, but then he uses other parts of the film to talk about sort of, you know, radical documentary traditions and Timothy Carey and various other things. And it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird movie. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't cue you in the way that the, the certain kind of like, like uh, Los Angeles plays itself or something like that kind of, uh, it's not, um, it's not so overt and it's a little bit more slippery as to what it's really getting at, but I found it quite moving. Um, I recently watched Some Kind of Monster, the Metallica documentary, um, which also, because I've been in this Hong Sang-soo headspace, reminded me of his films, of these uh, self-important men who, uh, <laughs> who struggle. Uh, men handle and, women and drink soju. And- yeah, no, they have this therapist um, yeah. who's working with them, and they, they are so earnest but also, and again, longing for these, like, for to make magic, to make this amazing music. And the album is, the music is total garbage. It's so bad. And they, they, <laughs> they like, but they're, like, trying so hard, and they have all these problems. And it's, um, it's kind of brilliant. And the, but the filmmakers, I think, um, on some level are aware. I, it seems like you've all seen it. They're, they, they're, like, totally aware of what's happening um, and have these sort of, not quite knowing, but cutaways, zooms maybe um to to little details like the the kind of like the kale salad that's being eaten or whatever um uh i'm still thinking about it it's it was amazing and it's band therapy that they're in Uh they're in band therapy yeah yeah wow wow i've never i've never seen it but it it sounds pretty amazing you know those guys talking about their feels that's pretty um I'm trying to think. I, th- I think the movie I saw, I saw this a little while ago, but it's now in theaters as The Fits. Yes, I, I quite like The Fits, and I find it hard to talk about in a certain way. Except beyond beyond noting that, unlike so many um, early career films by American independent filmmakers, it has a real command of tonal qualities. Yeah. Um, and even though I think the the ending doesn't really stick the landing in any sort of way, the fact that for so much of its running time, which is brief, it's maybe 75 minutes, something like that, but for a good 72, 73 minutes, it seems completely in control of what it's trying to do in the story of this young girl and her dance squad and her coming of age and what's happening there, even though there's kind of a mystery and a magic to it that is ineffable and you can't really put your finger on what exactly it is. You know, it makes me hopeful that there's another movie that's even better in this filmmaker whose name is Anna Rose Homer or yes. okay. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, having for us. the soju. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet podcast produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. 
Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.